0: You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 if you're not there yet. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one of these Black Pew Bibles right in front of you, and you can find 1 Timothy chapter 3 on page 932 in the pew bible first timothy chapter 3 i warned you back when we started in first timothy that this is going to get personal personal for me personal for you that's because just about everything contained in the pastoral epistles is directly applicable to the life of the church and to our lives as christians Of course, the entire Bible is God's holy word. Every single word of the Bible, every piece of it is profitable for us. But as we saw in our time in Genesis, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult to draw a direct line from a story like Sodom and Gomorrah to our lives. Sometimes the line isn't quite as direct. But when it comes to these instructions in 1 Timothy, Paul is talking about Christians and he's talking about the church. And even though we're living nearly 2,000 years later, God's design and mission for the church has not changed at all. So when Paul gives instructions to the church in Ephesus, he's just as much giving instructions for the church in Stapleton. It started to get personal for us last week as we explored some of the, the roles of men and women in the church. And over the next two weeks, it'll get even more personal. As we are talking specifically about pastors and deacons. So today I'll be putting myself and Pastor Daniel under the microscope in a sense, and next week we'll be able to do that with our deacons. So deacons don't skip next week. And I remember, and remember, these instructions come within the context of Paul giving rules for the household of God. These are the house rules for the church, for how we are to behave. In the household of God, as Paul says. And in this chapter, Paul's main focus is now on who is qualified to lead the household of God. Timothy needs these instructions. Remember, Timothy's facing false teachers there in Ephesus. And he needs to be able to determine if these people in leadership are qualified to be there. And if they're not, they need to be removed. And what does, what does proper leadership look like there for him in Ephesus? And that question is still just as important for us today. Any and every organization requires some form of leadership. It doesn't matter how small or simple the organization may be, even if it's as simple as a chess club in high school. That chess club is probably going to have a president of the chess club. Or, of course, if it's a nation of hundreds of millions of people, it certainly has a prime minister or a president in multiple layers of leadership. Now, a church is unlike any other organization on the planet, but it is still an organization nonetheless. It is an organized group of Christ followers who gather together to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, and observe the ordinances. That means that a church also requires some type of leadership. But who gets to come up with that? Who determines what form that leadership in the church should take? Do we need a CEO? Do we need a board of directors? Or is it just majority rule? Who gets to determine who fills that role? Do we just pick the most confident person? Do we pick the most successful business person in the church or the most intelligent or the best talker? Well, thankfully, God has not been silent on these issues. He hasn't left it up to us to just figure it out. And here's the amazing thing. Paul is writing these letters around 30 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So very little time has passed in the history of the church. The church is still in its infant stages, and yet already, even at this stage, it's already understood for there to be two official offices of the church, the office of elder or pastor and the office of deacon. Those are the two God-ordained roles that should be found in every single church. And they both have specific roles to play, and we'll get to explore the first of those today. But before we get to the qualifications, I need to give us a bit of a glossary. Maybe you've read a book or a paper before that had a glossary in the front or the back, giving you some specific definitions for technical words that you'll you'll, found there, you'll find there. And, well, we need one here. So if you're a note taker, you can write down three words. I want you to write down overseer. Overseer, elder, and shepherd. Overseer, elder, and shepherd. Three different words in the English Bible representing three different Greek words in the original language. The Greek word for overseer is episkopos, which is also translated bishop sometimes. And as you can tell, the Episcopal church gets its name from <clears throat> that Greek word, Then the Greek word for elder is presbyteros. The Presbyterian church gets its name from that word. And then the Greek word for shepherd is poemen. It can also be translated as pastor and has a strong association with the leadership of a flock. And in most modern translations, you're going to find those three different words in the Bible, but they all refer to what we commonly call pastors. Three different words, but they're all referring to the same And we know that's the case from passages where the apostles use those terms interchangeably. Like in Acts 20, it tells us that Paul assembled the elders of Ephesus, but then he goes on to call the elders overseers and refers to their job as shepherds. We find all three Greek words used there referring to the same people, the leadership of the Ephesian church. The Apostle Peter also uses all three words in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. So they're all referring to the same office. And in the New Testament, the most common word we find is the word elder. It's it's not talking about those who are older than you. It's speaking of the office or position of elder or pastor. And so throughout the rest of this sermon, you might find me saying the word elder but I just mean the same thing as pastor. So I'll use those interchangeably. I would like to use as much as I can the same language as the Bible uses. And those words, especially overseer, emphasize a significant distinction between the office of elder or pastor and the office of deacon. The elders are tasked with oversight and authority. Paul will even use the word rule later in 1 Timothy 5.17. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That means exercising authority and leading the church. Or in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, he gives instructions for how the church members are to view the elders of the church, saying, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. He speaks there of elders being over them or in charge of them in the Lord. And so there's a particular oversight and authority attached to the office of elder or pastor that is unique to it. And the truth is, the only pattern of church leadership we find in the New Testament is that of each local body of believers, that's each church being shepherded by a plurality of elders. And by plurality, I simply mean there's more than one. Every time the word elder is used in the New Testament, it's always used in the plural form, except when John refers to himself as an elder in Second and Third John, and when Peter refers to himself as an elder in First Peter. Every other time we find the word elder being used in the plural form. So nowhere in the New Testament do we find a church that's governed either by majority rule or that's governed by a single pastor. There's always a plurality of pastoral leadership. Now, while the only two biblical offices are that of pastor and deacon, those you have to find at each church, a church may decide out of wisdom or prudence to add other positions and structure to support the church. So you won't find uh, personnel committee or property and space committee or hospitality team anywhere in the Bible, but those can be appropriate to add to the structure of a church to help meet the needs of the church, but the key is that they should never undermine or subvert the god given authority and responsibility of the office of pastor so that's a just a brief summary introduction on the new how the New Testament develops the office of elder and pastor, and next week we'll get to look more into the relationship between pastor and deacon, but we can see clearly from the New Testament that the role of pastor was not just something made up by man, it was ordained by God, confirmed by the teaching of the apostles, and has been the model of church leadership for the last 2,000 years. But for today, I want us now to look specifically at this passage in First Timothy chapter 3, And see what Paul says about the qualifications for a pastor. Because if it's God's design for leadership in the church to look this way, we need to know who can actually fill that role. Who's qualified to serve in that way. So look at verse 1 with me. It says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So this is the second out of five times Paul uses the phrase, the saying is trustworthy. He'll use that five times in the pastoral epistles. And when he does, he's really trying to emphasize that what he's about to say is of vital importance. He wants him to make sure that Timothy does not miss what comes next. And he speaks of the office of overseer, the office of pastor. And he calls it a noble task. That word can also be translated a good task. Work. The office of pastor is not just a title, it's not just a position, it's a task. It is a good work. Notice he also says, he desires a noble task. And in the next verse, it'll refer to the man as a husband of one wife. And so in conjunction with what we read in last week's chapter about Paul prohibiting women from teaching or exercising authority over a man, the New Testament is remarkably clear that the office of pastor is reserved by God to be filled by a man. But understand, some people hear that and conclude, so you're saying any man can be a pastor, but no woman can be a pastor. And that would be a wrong way of looking at it, because not just any man can be a pastor. In fact, only a, a few select men can be a pastor, and it's the qualifications that determine their fitness for ministry. And the list Paul gives here is not understood to be, as, to be exhaustive, but it is certainly foundational. So let's go ahead and dive into these qualifications for an overseer, for an elder, for a shepherd of God's church. And I want to consolidate these qualifications down into four overarching qualifications. So four main qualifications, and the first is desire. The first is qualification of a pastor is desire. Don't miss that Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So the first qualification for someone to be a pastor is that they want to be a pastor. It's as as simple as that. He says he aspires to it and desires it. You'll notice that nowhere in here does Paul speak of a divine calling of God, Now, of course, we believe God is involved in calling people to the ministry, but sometimes we make it out to be a little bit more mystical than it actually is. When it comes down to it, it must begin with someone desiring to be a pastor. I can still vividly remember a time when I was a senior in high school, one day going out to lunch with my youth pastor at the time, we're sitting at a Mexican restaurant and and he had asked me, have, had I ever thought about pursuing ministry, you know, being, you know, full-time vocational ministry after high school? And at that point, I said, nope. Uh, I was deeply involved in church as a member, I had, but I had no desire, no aspiration to be a pastor. I had already decided to go off to University of Tennessee as a business major and go in that direction. But then if you fast forward about three and a half years after that, things had changed. A desire for ministry had developed in me, and it was a desire that I could not shake, that I could not deny. And sadly, I've seen some guys pursue ministry even though they had no passion for it. Maybe they just wanted to follow in the footsteps of their their father or grandfather who was a pastor, or maybe they felt pressured into it, or someone led them to believe that, If you're a really serious Christian and you love the Bible, then that must mean you have to pursue ministry. But the truth is, if a person has no desire for the ministry, then they should never pursue it. And you can be a faithful Christian who wants to honor God in every area of your life and still have no desire to be a pastor, and that's okay. You may have desire to honor God in a different kind of industry, a different calling, and that's right and good. So only once the desire is there should a person begin moving down the path to ministry. The desire is the first qualification. And while it's necessary for there to be desire, desire is not enough. The second qualification is character, character. The man must have godly character that character of the man is really the core of Paul's teaching here character trumps both desire and talent it doesn't matter if if that how much that person may want to be a pastor it doesn't matter if they claim that god spoke to them in a dream if they do not have the character to match it then they are not fit for the office it doesn't matter how amazing of a speaker or communicator that person may be. If they do not have the character to match it, then they have no right to the office of elder. There are so many aspects of the pastoral role that can be twisted and manipulated if there's not godly character to back it up. Just to consider a few, if if an egocentric man is in the pastorate, he can become filled with pride, getting to stand in front of a crowd of people each week, and they have to sit there and listen to everything he says. That can Fill a prideful man, or tempt them to turn the church into their own little kingdom. A harsh or domineering person can bully people with God's word. A dishonest or untrustworthy man can break confidence and turn people against one another. A greedy man can try to bring hidden financial or material benefit to himself by means of God's people. And of course, Satan would love nothing more than to destroy a church than by destroying the leadership of a church. And then just consider the incredible damage that occurs when there is a moral failure on the part of a pastor. Unfortunately, it seems like there's a story in the news each week. People are deeply wounded. Some people leave the church and never come back. Even faithful members start questioning everything that they've learned or been taught under that person. It does irreparable damage to the reputation of Christ's church in that community. And the saddest part is that in so many of those situations, people look back and say, we should have seen the warning signs. We, should, we shouldn't we should have overlooked those little character flaws. Character is the biggest gatekeeper on the path to being a pastor. And Paul goes on to list 10 qualities in relationship to these character uh, character qualities. And Both the list of elders found here and the list of deacons found in the next section are not meant to describe sinless perfectionism. We're not meant to look at these lists and say, like, wow, who could ever do that? They're meant to be seen as attainable. And I think you'll see that these qualities that are named are really qualities that every single Christian should be able to say are true in their lives. But when it comes to those who lead and serve the church, there is an even stricter expectation of character Due to the gravity of the role they play in God's church Or as uh, the Apostle James tells us That those who teach will be judged with greater strictness Because of the weight and gravity of what is being taught And so the first character quality Paul names Is first being above reproach That is that the person's life and conduct Is exemplary to the point that if someone were to accuse them of something The accusation would not stick It would not stick. They are above accusation, not because they have a title or position, but based on their character. If a pastor is easily accused of things and people say, well, yeah, I could kind of see that, then they are not above reproach. You could really view this as being the character quality that encompasses all the others. If you fail in one of these other qualities, we'll see, then you have failed to be above reproach. The next he says, the husband of one wife. There are several different interpretations of this quality, but in the Greek, it literally reads a one-woman man, a one-woman type of man. Now, this doesn't mean that a man has to be married in order to be a pastor. Otherwise, Jesus would not qualify, nor would Paul, who was unmarried. And Paul himself uh, spoke highly of the gift of singleness, yet Paul knows that the vast majority of men Do seek marriage. And so this quality really emphasizes marital fidelity and faithfulness. It pictures the kind of man who is singularly devoted to his wife. After all, the marriage relationship is the most intimate and exclusive human relationship there is. It's designed by God to be shared between one man and one woman for life. Paul even reveals to us in Ephesians that marriage is actually a demonstration, a living, picture of the way Jesus loves the church. So naturally, if a man could not be said to be completely faithful in that most sacred relationship, then he would automatically fall short of being above reproach. Then Paul mentions being sober-minded, that is that they can think clearly and soundly. He says self-controlled, that they are able to show mastery over their self. Respectable, that they bear themselves in a dignified way hospitable. He's welcoming to others and mindful of their needs. And that rounds out six positive qualifiers for character. Above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. And then there are four negative disqualifiers, starting in verse three. First, not a drunkard. That's pretty straightforward. Not violent, but gentle. After all, Paul has already told us that he desires that in the church that the men would pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Then he says, not quarrelsome. If someone likes to pick fights and provoke people, then he's not cut out for the pastorate. And finally, he says, not a lover of money. If someone's greedy and in it for a personal gain, then they are not fit for the ministry. Those are the character qualifiers and disqualifiers that Paul gives us for an overseer, for a pastor. If a man's character cannot meet this standard, then he may not continue down the road of eldership. Now, I've said that character is the biggest gate to ministry. You cannot possibly make up for a lack of character. Nothing in the world can. But character isn't the end of the road either. Not only must there be desire and there must be godly character, there must also be ability. The third qualifications of a a pastor is ability. Of course, some type of leadership ability is implied simply by the title overseer. It requires the ability to oversee and lead God's church. But from the list Paul gives us, he really only names one specific ability or gift. At the end of verse 2, he says, "'Able to teach.'" So it's interesting that out of all the qualifications, that is the only skill that's mentioned. Paul doesn't say a pastor has to be a good event planner, a good administrator, a good strategist, or any, have any other particular accomplishments. While some of those things might be handy, and might be beneficial, the, the only skill or gifting biblically, biblically required is to be able to teach. And to teach what? Obviously, this was referring to teaching God's Word. And why is that? Why is this the only skill or ability mentioned? It's because that is the primary responsibility of an elder or pastor, the ministry of the word. The priority is first evidenced in the book of Acts with the apostles. They were, the apostles, you can kind of look at as sort of the forerunners of what would become pastors. And do you remember how the first deacons were formed in Acts 6? The first deacons were formed in Acts 6 after a problem came up in the care of widows. The church was caring for the believing widows there in Jerusalem, and a certain demographic of the widows lodged a complaint that they were being overlooked in the distribution of food. And apparently it was a true complaint. It was actually happening. And how did the apostles solve the problem? They selected the very first deacons that could help meet the physical needs of the church. And here's the reason that the apostles give. They say this in Acts 6-2, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, at first you might think, well, they sound like they're too good to serve. And that's not what they're saying. They're not saying they were too good to serve tables. Instead, They're placing the priority upon the ministry of the word and saying that they cannot possibly neglect the ministry of the word that they've been uniquely gifted to do. And that's why they established the office of deacon to help meet the physical needs of the church. And we find that same priority for the elders continued throughout the New Testament, especially as we'll see in the pastoral epistles. Paul is continually calling Timothy and Titus to preach and teach the word. Like in 1 Timothy four eleven, he says, "Command and teach these things." Or in four thirteen, "Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching." Or six two, "Teach and urge these things." 2 Timothy four two, "Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, reprove rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching." Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And as we've already mentioned, 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. See, the New Testament writers put a very heavy emphasis on the pastoral responsibility of teaching God's word. Now, why is that the case? Why Such a heavy emphasis on the word and preaching and teaching was because the words of God are our very source of life. That's basically what we're just saying, and that you're, you know, you are, these are the words of life. That is the absolute truth for a Christian. It's through the truth of God's word and the gospel that we believe and are saved in the first place. It's through continual devotion, study, and application of God's word that we keep our hearts pure and unstained from sin. It's through the word that we're renewed and sanctified. It's by proclaiming the word that others can be brought into the fold. It's through the word that we're equipped to do what God has called us to do and called us to be. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There is no aspect of the Christian life that is not informed, inspired, fueled, and sustained by God's Word. That's why the priority of the pastor is, has to be the ministry of the word. The qualified pastor is gifted by God to teach God's word. For some pastors, that that may come in the form of Sunday morning preaching, just like I'm doing now. For others, it might happen in other settings. It works itself out in Sunday school and teaching youth, children, Bible studies, one-on-one discipleship, and so many other avenues where the ministry of the word occurs. But no matter where it's seen, the ability must be there. Someone might have the most exemplary godly character that you could imagine, but if they cannot communicate God's word in a way that benefits God's people, then the pastor is not for them. They might be able to serve God's church in many other ways, but the pastor must be able to teach God's word. So there's the desire, there's the character, there's the ability, and finally Paul gives three final qualifications that are matters of wisdom or prudence. So We'll call the fourth qualification matters of wisdom. These are really for the church, matters of wisdom. The first is in verse 4. He says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I've been struck in my study of 1 Timothy with Paul's close association between the family household and the household of God. They both require leadership, care, protection, nourishment, love, discipline. And because the church closely mirrors the family, Paul says that if a man cannot manage his own household, if he can't manage his own four or five or six people, then how could he possibly manage God's household? It's a practical and wise consideration. And the main mark he mentions is that the man is able to keep his children submissive and to do so in a dignified way. So his household is not out of control, but neither has he abused them into submission either. It's done in a dignified way. And then next, the next matter of wisdom is in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Have you ever seen one come... To Christ, and they're on fire for God. Their eyes have been opened to a new way of living and they're overflowing with passion and determination. And it can be tempting to automatically put those people in places of leadership in the church because they're on fire, they're passionate. But Paul warns against being quick to place people in the pastorate. Later on in First Timothy Timothy, he'll say, Don't be hasty on the laying on of hands. We've got to wait till their spiritual maturity that's beginning to develop. And he really cautions because sometimes those people can become prideful, filled with conceit, just like Satan did in the beginning and was condemned for it. So he's warning them from someone falling into the same condemnation as the devil. And practically speaking, there does does need to be an adequate time for spiritual maturity to happen and for fruit to be shown in their life. And then the third matter of wisdom is in verse 7. He says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. This is an interesting one. It takes the focus now to actually outside the church, but it makes sense. If a pastor has a poor reputation in the community, then it's going to hinder the gospel witness of the church. If non-Christians who know the pastor cannot speak well of him If he's known as being a a liar, a cheat, or some other thing, uh, then Paul says Satan is going to use that as a snare to bring him down. So those are three of the wise, practical qualifications that go along with the ability to teach and godly character and a desire for ministry. And now again, this isn't exhaustive. It's not wrong for a church to have other qualifications. Churches today might also require seminary education, some level of experience. A church might prefer a man who's married or has kids or uh, is familiar with a certain culture, and all those can be fine to require. But those qualifications given here by Paul can never be overlooked or ignored. The leadership of God's church is of vital importance because the church is the most important organization on the planet. It is the God-ordained organization tasked with spreading the good news of Jesus Christ across the world. The mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. There's no greater task or mission that has ever been given. And the church needs qualified elders and pastors through the ministry of the word to lead God's people to being everything God has called them to be and to do everything God has called them to do. And here's your responsibility in this. Maybe you've heard this and you've thought, well, that sounds like a passage just, just for pastors, but really it's almost just as much just for church members. As Baptists, we believe from the Bible we see an emphasis on the autonomy of the local church. We do not have a presbytery that oversees groups of churches. We do not have bishops that appoint pastors to certain churches like the Methodists do. Instead, we believe that through the Spirit of God within each believer, that it is the Christians within a particular community of faith that have both the ability and the responsibility to recognize and affirm those called to ministry. That's why it wasn't up to the search committee to hire me as pastor. They did all the background work. They did the interviews. They did the hard work on behalf of the church. But in the end, it was the entire church that voted to confirm me as your pastor. And that's an ongoing responsibility of the church as well. It is the church that confirms someone's character and affirms their giftedness for ministry. Someone does not declare themselves a pastor by themselves. A church is what declares somebody a pastor. And it's the church that makes sure its pastors maintain these qualifications as well. And here's the beauty of it. Just like in the family of God, or in the family household, just like in the family household, the family flourishes the most under godly leadership that is followed through Christ-like submission, so it is in the church. The church flourishes most under the godly leadership of pastors or elders that's followed through the Christ-like submission of every Christian And together they develop a community of believers that are of one mind and one accord pursuing the mission of God together. And let me take the opportunity to say that I am beyond thankful for the privilege of serving as your pastor. I do not take this responsibility lightly. It is a tremendous weight and gravity to be entrusted with the care of the souls of men and women And I know one day God will hold me accountable for whether I carried this duty out faithfully or not. But that responsibility also comes with incredible joys of seeing lives change, of seeing people mature and grow in their faith, and to see a body of believers living out their faith together. And so thank you for the honor of allowing me to serve as your pastor. My greatest desire is that God would so use me and so use us together as a church family to flood Stapleton and the surrounding area with the love of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. May God unite us together in that mission. Would you pray with me?